So welcome to another episode of the Bukhari Sellers Podcast. Today, um, I have a pleasure of interviewing somebody I've never met before, but I admire from afar, admire his work, admire all the work that he's done, and um, admire the best-selling uh, movie and book, Just Mercy, but I have none other than Brian Stevenson. How are you feeling today? I'm great. It's good to be with you. Yeah. So we start, my show is unique in that we ask each guest the first, the same question each time they're on the show or the first time they're on the show. And that is walk us through the arc of your career. Um, and, you know, you're an icon and the work you've done has, among other things, inspired a movie, a best-selling book, et cetera. But talk to us about the history of your organization, the Equal Justice Initiative, and what the Equal Justice Initiative has been up to and why the work that you're doing is more important now as ever. Yeah, well, thank you for that question. Uh, I mean, I think the arc of my career and EJI are kind of intertwined. I'm a product of Brown versus Board of Education. I grew up in a community where Black kids could not go to the public schools. And lawyers came into our community to make them open up those public schools to kids like me. There were no high schools for Black kids when my dad was a teenager. So most of the adults in the racially segregated community where I lived didn't have high school degrees. And that limited their economic opportunities and their opportunities for a lot of things. And these lawyers were able to do something that our democracy could not because the county was 80% white. If you had a vote on whether to let kids like me into the schools, we would have lost that vote. But these lawyers had the power to enforce the rule of law, which meant that I got to go to the school, I went to high school, I went to college, and I went to law school because I wanted to access the same power those lawyers had access to help mm -hmm. me to help other people. And when I finished uh, Harvard Law School in the 1980s, it was clear to me the community of people that were most at risk in this country was this growing population of people being sent to jails and prisons. Our prison population went from 300,000 in the early 70s to 2.2 million today. And I wanted to respond to this crisis that was impacting black and brown communities, communities like the one I grew up where all of the young uh, men of color in particular, but lots of people were being swallowed up by this punitive carceral system. So I went to uh, Georgia, began representing people on death row because in terms of hierarchy and who was at most immediately at risk, condemned prisoners facing execution were at the top of that list because they were literally uh, dying for legal assistance. Mm -hmm. And uh, the e Equal Justice Initiative came out of that need, I, I moved to Alabama in the late 80s. Alabama has no public defender system. There was no indigent defense system for people, uh, even people on death row. And uh, we decided to create an organization that provided legal services to people who were facing execution, people who had been wrongly convicted, people unfairly sentenced. Because the thing I learned was that we have a legal system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Yeah. And over the last 30 some years, the work has continued. And, and you know, now we represent a lot of people. Uh, we've expanded our work to talk about uh, the history of racial injustice, because until we confront that history, I mean, I think what was interesting for me was about 10, 15 years ago, I began to worry that we couldn't win Brown versus Board of Education today, that our courts today. Oh, no, we wouldn't win today at all. Exactly. They wouldn't do anything that 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 uh, dis, you know, that that was that complicated and, and disruptive on behalf of disfavored people. So that's when we realized we had to get outside the courts in addition to the work we're doing and begin the work that we're doing today on, on racial justice and narrative work. 
And I do think it's more urgent now than ever. We're in the midst of a critically important narrative struggle over the future of democracy, over the future of a commitment uh, to diversity and uh, over uh, recovery and remedy for communities that have been marginalized. And uh, I'm really uh, uh, challenged by the work, but mm -hmm. really grateful that I have an opportunity to participate in what I think is one of the most critical issues that our nation has ever faced, which is how we overcome this legacy of enslavement and lynching and segregation and bigotry and violence that has uh, put us in peril once again when it comes to the nature of our democracy. Let me ask you this question because this is, I mean, this is a very generic question and I have a more complicated question. It's complicated in my head. Um, but the, it goes without saying that you're unique and the work you're doing is unique, but there's also a human element to it. And you've kept at this work now for decades. So my my very personal question for you, and I talk to T.D. Jakes and Tyler Perry and y'all yeah. and Vanzan all the time, but what keeps you sane? And, and what keeps you going? I mean, I, yeah. before we get to the votes <laughs> of the how and the policy, like, how yeah. do you stay sane? That's a great question. Um, I, I do think a lot about the people who come before me when I start to feel a little unmoored by the challenges. And that really is what keeps me sane. You know, during the pandemic, I didn't leave Montgomery, Alabama for 18 months, which caused me to just think about the generation who came before me. And I stand on the shoulders of people who did so much more with so much less. You know, the generation before me would put on their Sunday best to go places to push for the right to vote and they'd get beaten and battered and bloody. They'd go home, clean themselves off and go back again. And I think about what allowed them to do that. And there was, and it was this conviction, this belief in things that they hadn't seen and knowing that history really helped center me in moments of crisis. My great-grandfather was enslaved in Virginia and learned to read while enslaved, even though that meant he could have been sought, uh, sold or killed. And my grandmother told me that he would read uh, to formerly enslaved people who couldn't read once a week so that they would know what was going on. And my grandmother worked as a domestic her whole life. But she was a reader. She taught all of her 10 children. I mean, I, I have a lot of younger individuals who listen to the show, too. Some even college educated students. So please tell them what a domestic is, because that, that yeah, even yeah. flies over their head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my grandmother cleaned other people's homes, mostly white people's homes uh, her whole life. But she was the most powerful, influential person I ever knew. And while she was doing that work, cleaning people's homes, she was also learning the importance of education. And so she made sure all of her children were great readers. And I'd go see my grandmother. Sometimes she'd have a pile of books. She wouldn't let you in the house until you read something in one of those books. And as I said, I grew up in a poor racially segregated community and um, my mom went into debt uh, you know, to buy us the World Book Encyclopedia. So we'd have a portal to this larger world. Before the internet, there were these things called encyclopedia that were books that told you, answered many of your questions. And I say all of that because I think about my enslaved great-grandfather, I think about my grandmother, I think about my mom. When I'm in moments of conflict and crisis, I think about Rosa Parks and Johnny Carr and Dr. King and John Lewis who had to face so, many, so much violence and threat. Dr. King's house was bombed repeatedly. I mean, he, you know, they, the FBI told him to kill himself, yes. Yeah, exactly. All but of don't them. you think something's wrong with, I mean, let me just say it as bluntly as it came to my head. Don't you think something is wrong with us or something is innately 
backwards about the fact that black folk, I think the same thing. I think about my dad struggling, those struggles that we literally have to go to trauma and the fact that lineages and generations have gone through trauma. So we must keep going instead of thinking about the blessings on the other end. Yeah, I think I do think, though, it is the struggle for freedom. It is the struggle for full humanity. I mean, you, you know, formerly enslaved people could have said, oh, we want retribution and revenge against all of those who enslaved us. Some did. Some did. Some did. Some did. Some did. But most of folks said, no, what we understand is that if we embrace that kind of violence, if we embrace, embrace hatred, not only does it not probably succeed, but it separates us from the things that are most precious. And even in the midst of slavery, Black people found a way to love. Uh, in the midst of terror and violence, we found a way to embrace and to hold on to these essential things. And so it's not unique to the Black experience that if you want to be a full human being capable of giving the kind of love and creating the kind of community that you want, you have to fight for it. You have to struggle for it. And I think that is the genius of the Black experience. It is the gift of the Black experience. I wouldn't trade this history no, for, sure. uh, for what it yields. And so we have to hold on to that. But you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a burden to have to it's, constantly- It's a unique it. burden, certainly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but the so beauty- Let me ask you this. I, I know we're, we're actually deeper than I thought we would be here. Um, but you know, one of the major um, policy initiatives that even as much as I may pray about it or think about it or be pressed on it, um, that I cannot get my head wrapped truly around is that of the death penalty. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll admit I haven't kept up with any major policy changes to the death penalty. Um, but I guess my my first question for you is um, just a, a very surface level one. Um, how have you seen the policy around capital punishment change as a result of the work that you've done at the Equal Justice Initiative? That's first. And then I'll get into the more human yeah. aspect of the second. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, what I feel good about is that we've been able to change the question that people ask when they think about whether there should be a death penalty. I don't think the threshold question is uh, whether people deserve to die for the crimes they've committed. I think the threshold question is, do we deserve to kill? And what we've been trying to do is to get people to understand that if you have a system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent, you don't deserve to kill. If you have a system mm. that cannot reliably identify who committed the crime, for every eight people we've executed in this country, we've now identified one innocent person on death row who's been exonerated, which means that that's a horrific error rate. And none of us would accept you know, if, if it came out that one out of eight apples had a toxin in it, that if you touched that apple, you would die. They would recall stop all the apples. You yeah, recall all the apples. Yeah, you would stop selling apples. But but that we have. So part of it is just getting people to understand how we are are un, we're taking this unacceptable risk. And so we have seen things change. The execution rate has dropped dramatically. Uh, the death sentencing rate has dropped dramatically. Uh, support uh, for alternatives to the death penalty has increased. There's a majority of people in this country now that favor life sentences over. Uh, the death penalty, which wasn't true when I started. Um, but we still have a long way to go. A bunch of states have abolished the death penalty um, since we started this work. But I see the death penalty as an important issue for the country, because given our legacy of extreme punishment during slavery, given the thousands of people who were lynched during the first half of the 20th century, given the brutality that civil rights activists faced, this use of extreme violence in response to uh, change 
means that the death penalty is a central civil rights issue. And we're making progress, but we still have a ways to go. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I mean, that's, and so you, you answered kind of my second question in the first question. And I was posed, it was posed to me by Kate Baldwin um, in 2015, in June, June of 2015, outside of Mother Emanuel Church, where my good friend Clemente Pinckney and eight others had been gunned down. And yeah. the question was asked, how do you feel about the death penalty? And I paused like on TV, just could not really grapple with the answer to the question, because for me, I recognize it's disproportionately applied and the flaws that are there. But when you have a friend who and his friend, I mean, if, if there was a case for the death penalty, right, the litmus test should be Dylan Roof. If yeah. we can't kill, I mean, respectfully, right. if we can't kill Dylan Roof as perverted as that sound, then we shouldn't be killing anybody, right? Yeah. yeah. I, and is that an appropriate framework to look at it? Or should we, is there an inverse frame by which we should look at it? I, I think I think there's something that's a bigger question for me, which is, um, you know, do we think that the reaction to uh, killing should be more killing. And I think that the beauty of, I think the African-American experience in this country, we've always been able to see something beyond the immediate. You know, our policymakers are basically saying, we're gonna kill you to show that killing is wrong. And I think what that suggests is, is that that sort of strategy is effective when in fact it's not. I agree that there are people who do horrific things that whatever the most extreme punishment is, you should expect that for them. It doesn't always play out that way. But I ultimately think um, it's about our uh, capacity to, to move, to, to kind of recover. And if, it, you know, as, as Gandhi said, you know, an eye for an eye just makes the whole world blind. I think there is something to this idea that we're never gonna kill our way out of racism and bigotry. We're not gonna kill our way out of systemic uh, injustice and poverty. We're not gonna kill our way and those that use violence to solve these problems just create more violence. And I, I was devastated by that horrific murder uh, in, in Charleston, uh, but it followed a long history of um, uh, violence against black people uh, that we haven't reckoned with. And that's the challenge that I have is that if you're really serious about disrupting that kind of, you gotta hold people accountable when the rule of law is undermined. And we didn't do that throughout most of this century, of the 20th century, when Black people were being pulled out of their homes and beaten and drowned and tortured and lynched. 
on courthouse lawns. Our government didn't respond. And that yeah. legacy is what creates the Dylan Roofs. It's what creates uh, these people going into sacred places and committing acts of violence. And if we don't talk about that, and a lot of them would rather you execute Dylan Roof as if that how, somehow is executing racism or executing the systems and structures that created that bigoted worldview. And what a lot of us are saying is, no, we want to actually execute the structures, the systems, the thinking, the bigotry that creates that kind of individual that does that kind of act, because that's the way we all become safer and the community gets healthy. So let me ask you this when and we'll, we'll switch gears a little bit because we could talk about the death penalty all day. And it's a very, very unique and difficult and nuanced. It's not yeah. I, I, as you grow older and it happens quickly, you learn that the answer is not are you for the death penalty or against it? It's, it's the way people frame the abortion question. Most black sure. folk are more nuanced about it than I'm pro-life or pro-choice. But um, let's talk about mass incarceration. When President Biden got into office, he promised to cut the fe federal prison population. Well, that's not what happened. Um, what steps should this White House and this DOJ take to finally make progress on reducing the size of our federal prison population? And for those listening, caveat footnote, we have about 2.2 um, 2 million people who are incarcerated in this country. The numbers may be off here or there. And only about 200,000 are actually incarcerated in federal prison. So I'm not just shitting on the Biden administration. Those are the numbers. But yeah. if they wanted to do more, how could they do that? Well, thank you. And I appreciate you making that last point because the federal system is a small microcosm of the overall problem of mass incarceration. But it's an important part of this system. And I do think that um, being more aggressive, uh, it, the question should be, are there people in our federal prisons that don't need to be there that are not a threat to our pub yes. to public safety? And the answer to that is yes, lots of them. <laughs> lots of, especially in the federal system. In state prisons, a lot of people need to be there. But yeah. in a federal prison, we can reduce it by half, I'm sure. Abs absolutely. And so the question then becomes, why don't we? And, and we should. We've got, we, you know, we put a lot of people in the federal system because we had this misguided idea that if you're drug addicted or you're drug dependent, you're a criminal. When in fact, drug addiction and drug dependency is a health problem. We need a health care response. And if we engaged in that and provided care and treatment, I do think we could reduce the prison population, federal prison population by half. The overall prison population could be reduced in half. But it's going to require real leadership. It's not going to happen by itself. We've already condemned people to imprisonment for decades. So I do hope that the, the White House and the, and the Justice Department is more proactive you know, when uh, Eric Holder was the AG, he said, we're not going to prosecute people for these kinds of offenses that trigger these kinds of sentences, uh, because I see that as unjust. We're going to have to do that again. And then I think we have to be remedial. We have to correct the problems created by decades of that kind of prosecution. I, I think the pr federal prison population could be reduced in half. And I think if you had a task force with that objective, it could not only be achieved without increasing threats to public safety, but it would really reflect the kind of commitment that we need to make on this issue. I, I love, 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 love Kamala Harris. I want her to be president of the United States. We're really close. Um, I have a great deal of admiration and respect for Joe Biden. That is somewhat counterintuitive to their life's work, though, right? I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to be disrespectful no. of them, but, you know, asking for that. So how would you grade this White House and pressing you on this? But how would you grade this White House on issues that you follow at your organization? Well, I, I think it's a mixed report. I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged that they are actively investigating um, police departments where we know there's evidence of police misconduct. They are following through and challenging 
horrific conditions of confinement. I think that's been really important. Uh, they've done some important work on a lot of issues that have long been overlooked and ignored. And so in that way, it's an A, but they absolutely can and should do better on some of these critical issues. I don't know why the, the, the Justice Department is still seeking the death penalty in cases where there are victims, family members who say we don't want it. Uh, you know, there was a case, the Boston, uh, this Boston bombing case, that uh, a lower court had said that young man needs a new trial. His conviction and death sentence were, were not constitutional because of these outside pressures. Uh, the Trump administration challenged that, appealed that ruling. I, I was hoping that the Justice Department would uh, would retreat from that because, you know, that's what they should do. They didn't do that. And I'm meeting with people even today who are upset about the fact that they're seeking a death sentence in this case in Pittsburgh when they don't want a death sentence. So there is a lot more they can and should do. Um, I know that it's not intuitive because these are not powerful people, people on death row, people in jails and prisons don't have political power and influence. And it's not, I mean, it ain't sexy. Ain't nobody, nobody's getting elected going to be like, I'm a, let me go for, let me go to bat for a bomber. If your yeah. nickname ends in bomber, exactly. we ain't going to bat for you. No, that's exactly right. But I think it's important that we represent this kind of commitment to the rule of law that transcends the politics mm -hmm. of fear and anger, because most of these folks are in these situations of jeopardy because we allowed fear and anger to dictate what happens. And what we've learned is that when you allow yourself to be governed by fear and anger, you tolerate things you shouldn't tolerate, you accept things you shouldn't accept. Uh, and I have the same admiration you do for the president and Vice President Harris. And I'm really excited by a lot of what they've done, but this is an area where we can do more and we can do better. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. So, you know, one of the things that, that we're seeing more of is a more, is a more compassionate look at drug laws and criminal justice reform. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, a lot of elected officials, they legislate um, based upon their lived experiences. Mm -hmm. And so with Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, you're seeing that carry out in his priorities. Um, the same with some of the some of the mistakes are early on or the results of decisions, prosecutorial decisions that the vice president made. You're seeing that. What are some of the glimmers of hope around criminal justice reform and reform policies that you see? And I'm going to ask you, if you can, to take it out of the frame of this George Floyd moment or this Tyree Nichols moment, because those kind of posturings and flashes in the pan, I, I, I want to move away from those to more substantive bedrock change because I'm tired of black folk having to die for us to get there. Sure, sure, sure. Well, I do think that we have seen some movement on the idea that it doesn't make sense to be tough on crime. It makes sense to be smart on crime. Uh, and, and even conservatives have embraced that frame 
which means that there are opportunities to reduce the prison population in a lot of places. Uh, for, you know, people, you've got people on the right who are against big government, where there's nothing bigger in our government than the carceral complex that we have built that is taking millions of dollars away from funding for education and funding for housing and funding for other programs. And that economic analysis has allowed us to kind of persuade people that having the highest rate of incarceration in the world is not in anyone's interest. That is not something about which you should be proud. And so we've made some progress on decarceration in the drug space. We've made some progress on decarceration when it comes to low level offenses. I still think we have to make progress in dealing with mental health, dealing with trauma, uh, dealing with a lot of the behavioral health problems that end up being uh, part of the criminal legal system when they should actually be part of a robust, active healthcare system. And that's where the new challenge is going to be. Uh, are we willing to invest in the kind of mental health care and treatment, the kind of uh, engagement with trauma that doesn't take the view that after you rape, rob, or murder somebody, we're gonna really be tough with you. We're gonna beat up on you. Let's talk about how we prevent rape, rob, and murder right. by engaging people who we know are struggling with mental illness, who are dealing with trauma at the earliest levels. I think there should be an intervention and the zip codes in this country, where 70 to 80% of the kids end up in jails and prisons because they are dealing with a trauma disorder. If you grow up in a community where people are being shot and you're hearing gunshots all the time, where you have to go through metal detectors, where you're being menaced all the time, you're gonna have the same kind of post-traumatic stress disorder that our returning combat veterans have. And we ignored them for a long time and then realized that we can't have a healthy military if we ignore trauma. We have to do the same in these communities that are plagued by violence and plagued by addiction and plagued by abuse. And that's the kind of investment that I think could really push us forward. But we're making some progress. We don't have the same debate about addiction and dependency and how that's a health issue rather than a crime issue that we used to have, which gives us an opportunity to do a lot of decarceration. Why has that changed though, Brian Stevenson? Why did you tell, <laughs> tell me you, why in 1980s and 90s they put you <laughs> I was I was born in 84. So I kind of missed the crack thing a little yeah. bit on the tail end of it. Yeah. But for me, they put a lot of people in prison for crack and they let they given a lot of people substance abuse treatment for opioids. Yeah. Yeah, well, see, that's just like you said at the beginning of your question, the lived experience of these policies and legislatures, that's really what has had an impact. And guess what? We discovered in the late 90s in the aughts that, you know, it was actually in white communities, it was actually in rural America that we were seeing the rampages of untreated opioid addiction. And the overdose levels went through the roof and the death rates went through the roofs. And now people are beginning to realize because it hit their household, their family. It's not an urban issue in black community. It's an American issue. Oh, this is more than just criminality. It's about a health problem. And that's what shifted the debate. When President Trump took office, oh, yeah, it's, a, it's about mental health. It's about health. Well, unfortunately, that came decades too late for a lot of young uh, black and brown people. But uh, you know, we'll take that recognition and now try to use it to, to help as many people as we can. And that's the opportunity. That well, I, I was being somewhat uh, sensationalized, but I'm really glad we made it to this moment, although yeah. it cost a lot of black men in particular their, their lives. Uh, so one of my last questions for you before I get to the most important question, which is how can people find you and catch up with you and, and yeah. donate to the work that you do? I have a few people who are in the financial space who I, I'm sure you don't need anything, but would love to help <laughs> as well. 
So my, one of my last questions is you've also made a lasting impact through your National Memorial for Peace and Justice that honors the names of, of each of more than 4,000 African-Americans lynched in the 12 states of the, U, uh, of the South from 1877 to 1950. You have a unique perspective on the South's addiction to lynchings and how there's a through line from lynchings to the region's views on capital punishment. Can you unpack that for our listeners? Sure. I, I think that um, we are not free from this history of racial injustice. I think it's created contaminants in the air. And it doesn't matter where you live, not just in the South, but all over this country. There's this legacy and history of racial injustice that undermines our policymaking and our decision making. So I think we have to talk about things we haven't talked about. I think we have to talk about the fact that we're a post-genocide society that would happen to indigenous people when Europeans came to this continent was a genocide. And we defended that violence that killed millions of indigenous people by creating a narrative of racial difference. And it was that narrative that justified uh, two and a half centuries of slavery and the great evil of slavery for me wasn't just the brutality and the violence and the bondage, but was this false idea that white enslavers had to create to justify enslavement that black people are not as good as white people, that we're less capable, less worthy, less human. And that's what survived the Civil War, which gave rise then to this century of violence where black people could be tortured and lynched. And so the narrative around this history of racial injustice, this presumption of dangerousness and guilt that gets assigned to black and brown people, you are respected uh, leader, podcaster, journalist, I'm a lawyer, you can be a doctor, you can be a teacher, you can be a pastor, but if you're black or brown, you will go places in this country where you have to navigate a presumption of dangerousness and guilt. And, and, guilt. That's, and, and that's not right, that's not fair. And that's why what we're doing in the criminal legal system is critically important for how we recover from this history of racial injustice. And that's, what, that's the story we tell at the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. That's the story we tell at the Legacy Museum, and I think it is a critical story because we need an era of truth and justice, truth and repair, truth and reconciliation. And reconciliation. Truth and restoration, all of those beautiful R words, truth and reconciliation. But the, what, what people need to understand is that these things are sequential. You can't have the reconciliation, the restoration, the redemption, the reparation, all of those things until you first tell the truth, because otherwise you don't know what you're actually trying to recover from. And uh, the truth has to come first. And that's what we have failed to do. And that is the critical challenge we face in this country at this time. People know that when my show goes 30 minutes or longer, I'm having a good time. We try to make it so that you can actually listen to the show on the train ride or car yeah. ride to work, or you're working out on a treadmill in the morning because nobody's doing more than 30 minutes on a treadmill anymore anyway. <laughs> so my last question for you is how can listeners support the work you do at EJI? and follow what you're up to. Well, I don't know, do you have a Twitter page? Because I, 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 yeah, I We know. do, we do. You, do you have a Twitter page? I, I do not. I, I did not get involved in the social, and I, I'm actually not ashamed of that. My mental health, my emotional health seems to be uh, faring better, but eji.org, at eji.org, and people can come and visit us. I want to invite everybody to come to Montgomery, spend time at the Legacy Museum, spend time at the National Memorial. You can go to our website, eji.org. There's a ton of information there. And we do. We appreciate the support. We're completely private, nonprofit. We don't take government funding to, for any of our work. I say that. We've never been offered any government funding. But even if we were, uh, we are a private nonprofit trying to do what we think has to be done. Uh, and uh, so, yes, I, but I mostly want to invite people to Montgomery to spend time at our sites. Well, look, I appreciate you, the work that you're doing 
and a big, big hand clap. And thank you for Brian Stevenson coming through the Bukhari Sellers podcast. Thank you, my brother. You're welcome. Good talking to you.